Night Trap will never appear on a Nintendo your arms from Are you troubled by strange beeps and clicks in the night? Do you experience feelings of nostalgia in your basement or attic? Have you or your family actually seen a Virtual Boy, Nintendo 64 disk drive, or Super NES CD add-on? If the answer is yes, then don't wait another minute. Call the Switch Focus Podcast. We're ready to believe you. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 93 of the Switch Focus Podcast. I'm your host Andy Corrigan. With me is Andrew Brown. Back off, man. I'm a scientist. <laughs> uh, no Ginny this week. She is uh, off at PAX Australia, uh, attending all the PAXs this year after some sort of stamp collection in her passport. Uh, but this week we have updates from Andrew on Ori and the Blind Forest and Darksiders 2, a bit on Northgard. Uh, we're going to talk about Ukulele and the Impossible Lair, which is a bit of a direction change from the last one. And then we're going to talk about Ghostbusters, the video game remastered, as you might have gathered from the awkwardness at the top of the episode. Uh, so let's get right into updates from the previous episode. Okay, Andrew, you should be further along on Ori now. I finished it a couple days after we recorded our last episode, which was two weeks ago now. Sorry about that. That's all good. Everyone's fault. <laughs> <laughs> it was a confluence of circumstances. Yeah. Uh, how was your final thoughts on Ori in the Blind Forest? I still liked it. There are other adventure platformers I certainly have liked less, but I, I definitely prefer Hollow Knight now that I've gotten through this entire game. I really do like the chase sequences, which is kind of what the stand-in for the bosses are. Like, when you get to the points in the game where you would expect to fight a boss in, say, Super Metroid. Instead, you have kind of this long chase sequence while something is behind you trying to kill you, be it a, a wave or a giant plume of flame or... A, a giant bird whatever it is i i did enjoy those sequences but the majority of the game is your standard adventure platformer and the method of attack in this game is this thing called the spirit flame all you really do with it is you get close enough to an enemy that it'll hit them and you press the button as many times as you can and you'll just bombard enemies with this spirit flame you don't have to aim or really be tactical with it, it it's not very interesting to use really and that was how i felt about it the first day i was playing the game too but i was only about 25 percent through the game when i reported on it in our last episode and i thought that was because of choices i had made in my upgrades i was deliberately trying to get the upgrades that let you find uh collectibles on the map instead of upgrading my flame so i figured my dissatisfaction with that weapon was just because I wasn't upgrading it. Then I started upgrading it, and it, it did get stronger, and it did get so I could fire it faster, but I still wasn't enjoying using it. And it kind of dragged the whole game down for me. I just I didn't enjoy fighting anything in this game. So I still like the game. It's a, it's a beautiful game, wonderful soundtrack, and I really enjoyed those chase sequences that take the place of boss fights, but as a, an actual adventure platformer, I just kind of found it average. Uh, different to me, but um, I was, like, because last time I, I did make the big call that I preferred it to Hollow Knight, um, and I was thinking on, on why that is, and I th I think it comes down to, like, Hollow Knight is awesome, and everyone should play it, but it's just, like, super grim the entire way through, <laughs> whereas in this one I felt like I was having a positive impact on the world, and I think that was the difference. 
uh, and it was that that kept me wanting to play it. So uh, I haven't jumped back in on Switch yet. I, it's on my to-do list, but I, I've been having to make sure that I've uh, been playing other stuff for the show, and uh, I've I've also been checking out some non-Switch stuff. So sorry about that. The other thing you've been playing uh, was Darksiders Two Definitive Edition. Have you finished that one as well now? Yeah, I finished that earlier this week. You've had a bit of a turnaround on that compared to the first, I believe. Yeah, I ended up liking the first one much better. The first one is, I don't want to say it's a smaller game. It took me about the same amount of time to finish both of them, but I I did do most of the side things in the first game. Found most of the collectibles. There were a few I didn't get because I just, I didn't know where they were and I didn't want to look it up and I didn't want to have to retread the entire game looking for them, uh, but the second one, there was a lot of side things I still haven't done because I just wanted the game to be over because I was not enjoying it, really. Uh, as I said in our last episode, it's it's a much bigger game, but that size doesn't always feel like they've actually done anything interesting with it. Uh, it, it feels bigger just for the sake of being bigger. Like, as I said, you have the mount, you have your horse right from the start of the game in Darksiders 2. In Darksiders 1, you don't get it until almost the end of the game, and there's only one or two areas you can actually use it in. Darksiders 2, when you're riding your horse through the areas, it does just feel like space that is just there so the game can be bigger and takes longer for you to get through. And you can bypass most of it with fast travel, so it's just padding, basically. I, I didn't appreciate it very much. And this whole sandbox was really just super meandering like didn't feel like a a world that was all that interesting to explore and the deeper into it i got the less it became a sandbox and the more it became just a straight line from where you start to where you need to go and there's really nothing to look at besides it and there's all kinds of collectibles that you can get there's like rocks and coins and artifacts that you can sell back to the different npcs that you encounter but none of them felt particularly important to get done they were just they were just there for things to do it got to the point where near the end of the game one area randomly turned into a third person shooter for like an hour (laughs) the whole game just it just feels like had really aimless design like they didn't really know what they wanted so they just tried a little bit of everything (laughs) and i I enjoyed the combat in the first game much more Uh, and the first game you play as the dark horseman war who had one of his arms chopped off at one point, and so he has a prosthetic arm which he uses as an entire shield. So you could just block things and counterattack. In Darksiders 2, you play as Death, who has... He, he dual-wields sides. Uh, so he can't block at all, and he can just dodge. And the dodging didn't ever really feel good. It never really clicked with me. Uh, a lot of the times I would dodge, and I would end up getting hit anyway. It has kind of a platinum style dodging mechanic where if you dodge at the last second then he will counterattack and you won't take any damage but I never felt like it was really necessary to do that and quite often I found that if I tried to do it that was when I was getting hit anyway versus playing very defensively so I enjoyed playing as war much more than I enjoyed playing as death and that kind of disappointed me because when I, I saw that rpg equipment system that they've added to this one i I got really excited but death just wasn't fun to use all those tools with and i encountered a bunch of bugs a couple times the sound on certain enemies would just quit working Uh, this happened 
on two pretty big boss fights, including the final boss fight, where the guy I was fighting just basically wasn't making noises, even though he was, you know, slamming into the ground with <laughs> three tons of force. <laughs> it kind of took me out of things. And there's also pathing bugs I found. There was another boss I fought uh, who just walked off the edge of the level and i had to quit out of the game and reload it so i could actually fight him that was that was kind of where i lost my patience with the game that was where i just really turned on it i still meant what i said in the last episode like if you if you're looking for an action adventure game to play in between you know the big tentpole releases of the year this is still a decent choice but i I much preferred the first game to this one yeah no worries I've, i've never played that one uh, so I, I can't really say one way or the, one way or the other, but uh, yeah, I think it, it sounds like it has a lot of problems that were typical of games of that era that all started with the whole bigger, better, badass thing where they were just making it bigger as a box quote thing rather than to do anything <laughs> interesting with the game itself. So yeah, so that's uh, updates. No real news. I, I do think we should just have a quick mention of something we mentioned in a previous episode, which was uh, I was excited for Overwatch on the Switch yeah not so much now with uh blizzard's actions in the last week i'm less excited to throw money down again on that <laughs> so maybe we won't cover it we'll we'll see how that pans out yeah just until there's a more satisfactory conclusion i think i probably want to hold off putting money down on it so yeah yeah okay let's move on to what we've played this week hopefully a bit more positive <laughs> Okay, first up, uh, let's talk about Northgard. So this is a Viking-era uh, RTS, is that right? That's exactly what it is. And actually, I-, I didn't know this going in until I started doing some preliminary reading a couple days before the game came out. But, you know, when I think real-time strategy, I think of Command & Conquer, I think of Warcraft, you know, turtling in a base while you build up resources and building up an army, then you go and you fight your enemy. That's what I thought Northgard was going to be. Actually, not at all. Believe it or not, even though this is a real-time strategy game, this game actually draws almost entirely from the 4X series, you know, like Civilization. It's oh, yeah. an explore, expand, exploit, exterminate system, and... I was fascinated by that because I do really enjoy Civilization. I've talked about it on the podcast in the past with Civ Six, which I played last year. You might not think that a 4X-style game would translate very well to real-time strategy, uh, but Northgard does it, and I think it does it very successfully. Uh, That actually might be an ignorant statement. There might be a lot of real-time strategy games out there that are 4X. I don't know, but this is the first one I'm aware of, and it's certainly the first one that's been on consoles. Uh, And how you control units is kind of the main wall in real-time strategy. It's what's kind of prevented real-time strategy from being as big on consoles as it has been on PC. Like, I I had StarCraft 64 back in the day, and they kind of made it work there, but it was still a much better experience on PC. And I think they've, they've made it work very well on console with Northgard, and I think that has a lot to do with how Northgard is designed in the first place, because I'm sure it plays exactly the same on PC, but they've simplified unit control to the point that it could very easily be adapted to consoles. How it works is when you want to create a unit is you have a number of villagers that are just kind of milling around your territory, and you have all these different production buildings that you can build uh, around the territory that you control. And each of these buildings, for the most part, can produce 
two specific production units. So if you have two extra villagers hanging around and you build a fisherman's hut, then you can send them off to the fisherman's hut. They become fishermen. Or for hunters, they become hunters. Or a healer's hut, they become healers, etc., etc., etc. And as a result, you don't actually have to move units at all. Uh, it's just a matter of selecting buildings and telling the building how many of a unit that you want. And if you have any available villagers, somebody will walk over and they will become that job and they'll start doing it. It's all automated. The only units you do command is actually your military units, which you have to build extra military production buildings for every military unit you want. So if you want four warriors, you have to build two of the warrior huts to support them. And you also have to have the villagers around to support them as well. And except for your army, who are the only characters that you really move around, your army is divided up into four different control groups assigned to the different face buttons. So it's real simple. You just, if you want your army to move to a specific area of the map to fight some units, you just point at that unit that you want them to fight and you press the army button and off they go again it's all automated they all do it all themselves and it's a system that works really well for consoles i was really happy with it and all your other units in their resource collection jobs you know they'll gather food and wood are your big ones and they'll also gather you know different other kinds of resources again this goes back towards the forex especially civilization like iron and steel and Uh, gold and things like that that you can use to advance into the tech tree and build super special things for your army to use. How the map is organized is how the game really feels like a 4x. Again, it's largely automated. You're not really directing your units anywhere, and you're certainly not directing them to explore specific squares. It's it's all done by your scouts. Uh, That's one of the first buildings you build is a scout lodge, and you can turn a couple of your villagers into scouts, and they will go off to the perimeter of the map, and they will start exploring the fog of war at the perimeter of your village. And you can direct them to specific areas, but they basically do it all themselves. The map isn't exactly divided up into squares or hexes or anything like that. It's divided up into, like, basic quadrants, and they can be different sizes, but really, if you just think of it as, you know, exploring a hex grid like in a 4X game, it works exactly the same as that. And as you explore these new areas, you discover new resources, like you might discover a lake that has fish in it, then you can build a fishing hut there so you can get more food that way, or you can find a source of of deer that you can hunt or some lamb that you can domesticate, and that's where you get most of your food from, and you find other things as well, such as opposing Viking clans, not enemy Viking clans, I'll get to that in a minute, but other Viking clans that you are working against, and also hostile creep camps. I, I, I played a lot of Warcraft 3, so I still call them creep camps, but <laughs> uh, just just hostile NPCs who are hostile to everybody in the game, and you have to just fight them to get them out of your way so you can uh, get to the resources they're guarding, usually. And if you want to ex- expand your base, each quadrant of the map, you're limited to a certain number of buildings in each, so you have to buy additional quadrants through colonization, where you spend a certain amount of food that you have stockpiled uh, to buy a new quadrant that then lets you build things there. That's how you get access to the new game and to the fishing spots, etc., etc., etc. And the more quadrants you buy, then the more food it costs to buy even more. So you really need to keep the food resources coming in. 
And where it gets really tricky is the game also is constantly running a calendar in real time, and when it gets to winter, then your production slows down. So you, you kind of have to pull back in winter and stop investing in things and just try to survive. Unless you're playing as one of the clans who specializes in winter, in which case that's your time to go out and attack other people while they're weaker. And the game is divided up into single-player and multiplayer modes. Uh, both of them work basically like a 4x game where you join in and you choose your clan and each clan has different strengths and weaknesses some of them are better at gathering food some of them have bonuses to wood some of them have better military units some of them are better at trade it, it just depends upon what you want to do uh, and there's the 4x victory conditions there's domination where you destroy every other viking clan on the game map there's fame where you uh, fight creep enemies and just generally go around doing stuff and earning the fame points so that way you have the most of that uh, at the end of the game then you win uh, there's trade where the person with the most money wins there's lore which there are certain resources you can find that let you basically work up a tech tree and if you can get to the end of that tech tree then you win and then there's uh, like special map conditions where you can win by like one of the map conditions I've run into is there's a Yggdrasil, the Tree of Life, can appear on some maps, and if you can colonize that square and hold it for a certain amount of time, then you win the game there too. So it's a really interesting application of 4X rules onto real-time strategy, and it works really well. And it has a campaign in it too, which which is nice. I, I was worried reading about it. I was like, okay, this sounds really interesting, but it also sounds like one of those games that I play for a day and then never touch again <laughs> but it does have a campaign where you play as the son of the high king who is the only survivor of an attack by the raven clan and this the chief of this clan after wiping out everybody else who's gathered uh under the high king for this meeting uh makes off with the map to Northgard, which is this resource rich continent that they just discovered and the son of the high king who is the only survivor sets off after him for revenge basically serves as a tutorial uh the first map there's really no enemies to fight it's just you learning about colonization and working your way across the map and when you reach the north shore then you leave for north guard the next map introduces uh, more resource gathering options and there's another clan that you have to work with you have to protect them from some creep attacks and it just goes on from that basically each map that you go to just challenges you to win under the different winning conditions. It's a super long tutorial, basically, with this revenge plot cutscenes in between each mission. But it, it, it has more to do in it. There's a mission tracker that will follow your progress on any difficulty and also on the highest difficulty. And after you finish each map, it actually unlocks more objectives for you to do. So there's quite a bit to do in that campaign. My main concerns about this is even though this is a real-time strategy game, it has the pace of a turn-based 4X game. Like I was reading some people who had reviewed this game. One of them said that uh, it's the only real-time strategy game he's ever played where he was able to go off and do a load of laundry uh, while he was playing the game, <laughs> apparently without unpausing it. And I, I understand that that feeling because, like you know, when you're when you set your scouts out to explore and you don't have anything for your military units to do, and you're just sitting there waiting for your resources to come in so you can expand to the next part of the map, 
you are just kind of sitting there just waiting for something to happen. Uh, it maybe is not the best paced game, but I think people who are into strategy games would really get a kick out of this. Biggest complaint, though, is the text size, which is the most comically small text size I've ever seen in a game like this. Like, seriously, on my big HD TV, I think the text box could probably fit on the Switch's screen when it's portable. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how small it is. Uh uh, the, the text is in portable mode is much better but when you're playing in docked mode it's almost unreadable unless you have your face two feet from the screen so that that's uh that's a problem that hopefully they they solve because <laughs> it's not good I, I saw your screenshot on twitter and yeah, yeah. just it gave me a migraine thinking about it <laughs> yeah I, I posted like a screenshot taken with my switch and i was like that probably doesn't get the effect off so i took a picture of my tv with my phone you can see that there's text there but you cannot read what it says <laughs> <laughs> it, it, the, the text size is not good <laughs> but the game is so you know I, I still recommend it cool uh so well let's talk about uh ghostbusters uh we're both uh, children of the 80s and would therefore be big fans of this as a franchise I guess you're a fan? Yes. This is a, a game that's aimed, obviously, at fans of the original movies, you know, featuring Dan Aykroyd, Harold Ramis, and, and Bill Murray. And Ernie Hudson. And Ernie Hudson, sorry. I just did the, the classic thing that everyone does when it comes to Ghostbusters. Don't Zoidberg Winston. <laughs> and, yeah, they're, they're all here. A uh, couple of absentee Sigourney Weaver's missing, and so is Rick Moranis. But both are mentioned. Rick Moranis's character has his own desk in the the Ghostbuster station with a note saying he'd be back at some point, which <laughs> which was uh, a joke on the way his he uh, chose with his career. He he took some time off uh, to be a family man, I believe, uh, taking Guile's advice. And yeah, so this is intended or was intended to be Ghostbusters three. Uh, it was written by Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis. And it's just like the most Ghostbustery thing I've ever seen. Everything about it is uh, 80s, like the movie. It's it's set in the 90s. It's in 1991, yeah. which was I was alive in 1991. It was still the 80s. Yeah, yeah pretty much. It was in that transitional period uh, where the, we were still heavily 80s influenced. Um, so it's got the absolutely banging Ray Parker Jr. theme song, uh, which everyone should know and bop along to automatically but it's also got elmer bernstein's awesome score the comical piano when you're in in the ghostbusters building and everything is is just awesome and they've even 80s-ified it to the point where you've got the original columbia logo fresh with like vhs distortion uh, yeah it's definitely not in high def <laughs> and not just because it's a switch game uh and yeah i i i'll preface this chat by saying um I'm, I'm spending most of it playing with like just a massive grin on my face uh but i do have some issues with it which a lot, a lot of them come down to its age and some of it is yeah. design mm-hmm. uh so the plot itself uh is you play as a self-insert uh who's who's handled really well and and to comic effect uh they call him the rookie uh, the joke. There's a great joke here that no one wants to call him by his actual name because they might become attached to him and then he might die. Uh, he's completely voiceless, uh, and his job is to test the new experimental equipment that Egon's been producing and potentially dangerous, <laughs> which is the reason why they don't want to become attached to him. Uh, that is really well handled, I thought. 
some of the uh, the the little gags that come along with that. Other than that, it's sort of become the story is just an excuse to revisit all these like famous scenes uh, from the movies, but they explore them in a little bit more depth. Uh, so the librarian ghost, who's the first ghost you see in the first movie, has a backstory which you then discover in the game. Uh, you find out why places are haunted. I was surprised at how early they unleashed the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man on you. They got to get that out of the way, you know, for people who don't finish games. <laughs> so <laughs> and yeah, so the the Ghostbusters are still considered heroes in this one. At least the mayor's riding their popularity. Uh, that comes into it. Even. Uh, What's his name? Peck makes an appearance in in the story throughout. I thought that was funny and unexpected. I should probably add I didn't play this when it originally released on 360, so this is this is my first time coming to it. So the the game itself, it I was looking at the uh, the number of levels. I looked at a guy just to sort of get a gauge on how long it is, and it's only got like seven levels, but they're all really long. <laughs> yeah, they're all an hour plus long. Yeah. So I've just got to the uh, history museum, which is like the third or fourth level. And uh, I've got three of the the proton pack upgrades at this point. So uh, throughout the game, you unlock all these different abilities. So you start off with the normal uh, proton pack, which uh, lets you like hurt and capture ghosts. Uh, I thought they did a really good job of turning the proton pack into something with gun mechanics. So yeah, it's um, like you could replace the proton pack with an assault rifle, and it would still kind of make sense. So you have to, you have to you have to vent it, which is like you reload uh so and you chip away at the the ghost's health uh throw down a trap and then you can throw out like a a beam that traps them and then you have to do like some ghost fishing and try and wrangle them over the trap which i'm having a lot of fun with they'll struggle you can then use a a slam mechanic which uh nintendo was stealing for luigi's mansion 3 uh, coming up soon. I don't remember if the first Luigi's Mansion had that or not. Oh, they, I really don't. They advertised it as a new feature. Oh, okay. And I haven't played them, so I, I can't really confirm or deny. But it was the way it was advertised was like, "Hey, this is a new slam thing." I remember playing Ghostbusters back in two thousand nine. I was playing it was like, "This is just Luigi's Mansion, <laughs> but it's Ghostbusters." <laughs> was my reaction, but I guess maybe the slam mechanic is new. Yeah, uh, and so part way in, you get. Um, Another ability where you you press the directional pad to switch to it whenever you want. It's kind of like a shotgun effect, um, but yeah, it, and the, it it is it it is a shotgun. That's what yeah, it is. They, they, they've all got uh, like secondary things as well. So that that ability, if you pull the left trigger instead, it does a beam which will slow down enemies and in some cases freeze them. Uh, I just got the slime thing, which is a reference to Ghostbusters Two, uh, now built into the proton pack, and that helps you like clear up dangerous ectoplasm that might be blocking your way and useful in, in some of the boss fight. Uh, I haven't got the fourth one yet. No idea what that is. By the end of the game, really, the only two you're going to be using is the proton pack and the slime blower. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the other two weapons, they just, they're not as good as the boson collider. They're just not. <laughs> uh, the boson dart. That's the alternate firing mode on the proton pack. Once you upgrade it, it's it's the best weapon in the game. So that's all he really used, except for the slime blower, which you have to use against some enemies because it just works better on them. But the stasis beam and the meson collider, which is the fourth weapon, they're fine. They work, but they're not as good as the boson dart, yeah, so I never use there them. There was um, the first uh, book golem that I found in the library. Uh, Ray was yelling at me to hit it with the slowdown thing, and I just found it easier to run away from it and then hit it with the boson. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, so I just ignored him. Uh, 
classic protocol for Ghostbusters. Uh, there's also like mild investigation elements where you'll you'll come to a stopping point in a room and you'll pull out the PKE meter and you'll have to to scan and get some of the the wider lore from that. And you'll you'll find artifacts. Some of them are references to the movies. Uh, and of course, you can upgrade all of your equipment. Uh, so you can upgrade like your proton beam and and the boson dart and all that sort of stuff, make them more powerful. I re- highly recommend getting the uh, no splash damage from the boson dart. <laughs> yeah, and the and the cooldown uh, thing too. Yeah, because then you can get two shots off before before it overheats. So yeah, I'm I'm really enjoying it mechanically. Uh, just that rhythm of getting into a new area and having to deal with the ghosts that you get a couple of times the difficulty has spilled over and i like i'm playing on Mm. on normal difficulty uh, and there was a part in the streets where i was getting attacked by uh some opera singer ghosts with fiery gargoyles and these other guys that just hang on the outskirts throwing fireballs at you and the whole thing was just hard to manage and i died like five times and then i was uh annoyed by the length of the loading screens to get me back to the previous checkpoint and then you have to go through all the dialogue again so there there is some yeah. some archaic like <laughs> design here it, like just checkpoint it's not perfect just just checkpoint after you know the dialogue part put me back in the action yeah that's a mistake many games make though yeah. so uh, it, it's hard to go well bad licensed games like no it's just game design problem that a lot of games have but uh part of my problem was that i wasn't keeping a good track on the other Ghostbusters, so you're, you're often fighting with other people. Uh, they go down and it's easy to miss, but once once you get the hang on the mechanic... I say that, there's big icons that indicate that they're down. Yeah, so <laughs> I was like, okay, well, different experiences for different people. I think it's fairly prominent when one of the other Ghostbusters goes down because there's a big icon and they yell at yeah. you. But uh... <laughs> I think most of my issue there is that they, they go down, but I'm already like in the thick of trying to dodge a million things, and that's when I miss it. And then it's like, oh, crap, raise down. Yeah. And then I'll well, I've, I've beaten this game a number of times on Xbox 360, so I, I already had it had trained myself to go and rescue them as soon as they go down because it's very important they go down like super easy it's almost annoying especially if you're playing on professional difficulty because you sometimes feel like you're spending more time babysitting the ghostbusters than than fighting ghosts but when you do go down and it will happen they can come and revive you so it's important to keep them up yeah and that that's one of the primary like challenges of the game. I think that's where the challenge comes in really is just making sure everyone's up so they can keep you up. Now as as for the the Ghostbusters themselves, like we say most of the voice cast is here. Most of them are great. Harold Ramis is like particularly the most uh, authentic version of Egon, I think. Like I I could actually close my eyes and believe I was watching the actual movie. I'm in a agreement with your notes here sorry uh that uh, dan Aykroyd and ernie hudson are also awesome ernie hudson is just he's a working actor he just he's always doing something so i'm sure he's very familiar with uh voiceover performance acting so this was probably no problem for him at all to do uh janine returns uh, annie potts i realize how much my nostalgia for this film just comes from her voice <laughs> we got one like that <laughs> and uh yeah so uh, you can uh, listen to her phone calls between missions when you're at the firehouse, uh, and not great. 
that it's fun it's fun <laughs> having a here but talking of not great let's talk about bill murray uh, oh, i feel so bad he, he doesn't care <laughs> well i mean yeah that that's bill murray is he he just exudes this aura of not caring but i i think that's just his ethos and sometimes that works great for him and sometimes it doesn't and really i mean half the time it doesn't sound like bill murray it certainly it doesn't sound like peter venkman when i listen to his performance in this game when i go back and watch the first movies and i'm like is this the same character <laughs> <laughs> but uh also like i i've seen I, I admit this to my shame i've seen the garfield movies the the live action ones with the cg garfield cast at bill murray yeah <laughs> and his performance in those is is pretty bad too and voice acting is very different from acting on film or for television which is where bill murray is rightfully famous and he's just not good at voiceover performance and that sucks to be him and you know even with as bad as his performance in this game is as disinterested as he sounds and how he doesn't really seem to be in the scene with the other characters i would still just rather have him because he is Peter Venkman, yeah. so... Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're onto something there where it feels like Bill Murray playing Bill Murray rather than Bill Murray playing Peter Venkman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, it, it always uh, blows my mind that he went on to voice Garfield and the voice of the Garfield cartoon was Peter Venkman in the real Ghostbusters cartoon. Yeah, uh, Lorenzo too. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that always the, do you mind. know the story of how Bill Murray ended up voicing Garfield the Cat? No, not a clue. Uh, he saw that the director of the project was Joel Cohen, maybe it was Ethan Cohen, and thought it was one of the Cohen brothers. <laughs> that was why he signed on for it, and he was already locked into it before he found out that it was just another guy who happened to be named Cohen. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. that 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 is bill murray for you <laughs> he floats through life and he's amazing yeah i wouldn't have him any other way but yeah i, I was surprised at how well overall the the voice acting is done i just assumed everyone would be phoning it in because it wasn't it wouldn't be a, a medium they really cared about but uh yeah everyone puts in a good one uh, of course uh, harold remus has died since this game released uh that's he's the game's now dedicated to him in the remastered version uh there's some other things it's missing multiplayer they say it's being rebuilt and will be patched in later in a free update now because i never played this originally was this tacked on competitive multiplayer or co-op it's co-op multiplayer where you like you basically just go out and do ghost busting jobs and there's a whole career stat that it has like keeps track of all the money you've earned and things it was a pretty good mode i, I was really hoping that this remaster would give it a second life and it, it's just not here yeah. uh for various you know porting reasons like the the saber interactive who did this port they had to contact the people at the development studio who originally made this to see if they still had the code laying around i guess one guy had uh the game's source code on a hard drive in storage and that was how this game happened so like maybe multiplayer will show up if they can manage it maybe it won't but the the draw of the game here is the ghostbusters 3 storyline so it's not the worst thing if it doesn't come here and it's it's a 30 dollar game so it's already half of uh a retail price game so yeah i i I don't begrudge multiplayer not being here um there is uh, no achievement system 
on the Switch, of course, and this renders a lot of uh, collectibles and things completely meaningless, uh, especially the monetary damage, which it did make me laugh when I noticed what it was doing. Yeah, like, you, did you shoot a bus or yeah. anything in Times Square? Yeah, and this huge thing tracks up. <laughs> yeah. The, this Ghostbusters on 360 and PS3, it dated from when, you know, trophies were still new and exciting, and, like, developers were putting mechanics in games that were just about trophies, so, like, there was, there's the damage meter where there was a trophy where you could reach a certain threshold and you would get it, a trophy for it. And there was also another trophy for causing, avoiding causing damage, which was, like, one of the hardest trophies in the game to get. Because, seriously, one badly placed bows on dart and you, you missed the achievement. Uh, and there's, like, the water fountains that are throughout the game, too. You can still interact with them, you can still drink from them, but without the achievement to drink from all of them, there's no reason for them to be there. <laughs> and there's other fun things, too, like uh, you could go down the pole in the fire station and you get an achievement, you've got to try this pole. Um, that's not here. Yeah. So it's just fun things like that aren't in the game anymore either. I do miss the achievements. I wish they had found a way to integrate them the way other ports have added, you know, in-game achievements yeah, but they're not here. And it's just bad. running around the fire station though was I, I enjoyed it a lot. There's the uh the big painting from Ghostbusters two where you can talk to the guy. Yeah. Uh Slimer's there, of course, trapped in a containment unit. Uh and lots of little references. There's the toaster, uh all that sort of stuff. Yeah, the dancing toaster yeah. is in there. Yeah. yeah. I I had fun exploring that looking looking for little in jokes. Now, uh there are some things where the uh, the events take a while to trigger sometimes in the game, uh, where you just sort of stood yeah. there with, with motionless Ghostbusters. Uh, I thought I'd broken stuff or that it had crashed a couple of times. Did that happen to you in the library? Yes. Yeah, we got trapped in the room yeah. right after you've met the Grey Lady. Yeah. <laughs> and you, yeah. yeah, that might just be just a, a, a bug in the game that they need to get fixed then, because the same thing happened to me, and I was like... Should I reload the checkpoint? But I just stood there long enough, and then just things just started happening. And I, I don't know. Yeah, just be patient. It was, it was the library <laughs> where it mostly it. happened to me. I think, or where it was most yeah. noticeable. Um, and uh, now apparently the Ghostbusters theme used to play in the checkpoint loading screens. <laughs> yes, and it was. It's not so bad when you're playing on easy when you're playing on normal. But I've beaten this game on professional a couple times now. This is a pretty. It's not a hard game. Like it's not. It is frustrating because y you do lose a lot for reasons that feel arbitrary and luck based. Like you're up against a particularly fractious group of enemies, and all the other Ghostbusters just go down in one hit because you're like, "Come on, guys, spread out." <laughs> but uh, and then the next time you try up, you just blow through it no problem. So that is a little frustrating. But just just don't play on professional, and it won't be a problem. And uh, yeah. Uh, and I did notice uh, when you boot up the game, none of the actual, like, you know, like the publisher or developer information, there's there's no audio. Yeah. I thought the game had bugged out. It was like, um, is there supposed to be audio here? And then it got to the title screen. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> I, I actually restarted it. And I was yeah. like, oh, no. And then I was worried my my Switch wasn't docked properly. And, <laughs> and then you nope. get to the actual screen. Uh, and it worked. So, yeah. Don't, don't panic when you boot it up if you decide to play. It was also ridiculously hard to get here in Australia if you didn't pre-order. Uh, I just happened upon a copy mm. in an EB Games and picked it up. Just I have this thing where if something's hard to get, I want it all the more. 
uh, and that was the only reason mm-hmm. I ended up getting it. Uh, but I, yeah, enjoying it so far. Uh, well, you've played it multiple times. You're obviously a fan, so yeah. Well, it it, it has a rough ending. I, I I feel like they had to compromise a lot to get this game done. The last level is pretty bad, and apparently Bill Murray just kind of wandered away during his recording. Uh, so they had to kind of hack together the <laughs> last part of the game for him. When you get to the last level. Pay attention to all of Peter's lines. You'll notice that they're all either his just generic statements that he makes in in battle and like when he calls for help or things he's already said earlier <laughs> in the game because Bill Murray just walked away. <laughs> <laughs> so the Peter basically disappears from the last level. <laughs> the actual animation itself is like varies wildly. I found like the, the cutscenes, mm-hmm. they're like almost like wonderfully expression at, at times like it, it almost feels like an, a proper animated movie but then yeah uh there's there's bits in the cutscenes where i'm just like like what's going on with the hair like <laughs> <laughs> well some of the cutscenes, like they're all saved as fmv yeah uh and you can tell but like some of the cutscenes were like animated like actual animated cutscenes and some of them were just in engine cutscenes that were saved as FMV and like and you can tell which is which because like the the in engine FMV cutscenes they there's a lot of artifacting in them and you can really see it when you're playing it docked but the actual like animated cutscenes which you can even watch from the main menu from this theater thing in the extras menu they look great and like the expressions are great and it looks like the actors so that was just a weird choice that probably dates back to when the game was on the older consoles and that was just what they were stuck with uh and you can definitely see the difference and uh it doesn't always look great you know there's points that in game where i was just like looking at ray and i was like wow that's dan Aykroyd," just like, wow, mm-hmm. wow it looked really cool um but yeah so yeah uh, a double recommend uh it's got some for me it has some age specific things i feel like i wouldn't have uh noticed if i'd played it originally or wouldn't have cared but they you know it, it doesn't exist in a vacuum so I, I i these things will bug me now if i come to them for the first time uh but i still recommend it i think it's a it's a fun game and i've been smiling the whole time so yeah Childhood Andy is very happy. I think it's a fun game. It's got some great ideas, but I, I really only recommend it for fans of the original movies. Like, I don't know how much younger people are going to get out of this because a lot of my delight with it, and from what I'm understanding, a lot of Andy's delight with it was how much it does feel like you know, Ghostbusters 3 that was supposed to come out in 1991 but didn't. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but like, if you're like a fan of the Ghostbusters reboot movie, I don't know that you're gonna get anything out of this. Um, I haven't seen that movie myself. I have no real feelings about it, so I can't really relate that. And uh, and I guess there's a new movie coming out in 2020 that actually is Ghostbusters three. It's it's a whole situation. <laughs> Let's not get into it. Uh, <laughs> but if you enjoy Ghostbusters one and Ghostbusters two, and you know you're like me, or you can quote it ad nauseum as i've been doing throughout this recording <laughs> i predict you will enjoy this game uh, in spite of its warts yeah well slime and fungus yes. <laughs>
Okay, next on the list is uh, Ukulele and the Impossible Lair. Uh, this is something I've had no interest in just because of the the general vibe about the original game. Uh, but I've heard some good things about this. Are you enjoying it? I am enjoying it, and I completely agree with what you just said. Uh, I was very wary of this game um, after playing the original game over the summer because the original game just felt like this this nothing burger of a game that was trying so hard to be Banjo-Kazooie that I, I just wanted to play Banjo-Kazooie the whole time I was playing it. But Ukulele and the Impossible Lair is a very different game. Uh, looking at it, it, it looks like it's trying to be Donkey Kong Country, and that is a direction you could approach it from. But what I've played of it so far feels like it's its, a, its own thing. Uh, it's divided into two different level varieties. There's side-scrolling levels, and this is where the game really feels a lot like Donkey Kong Country, where you're you're running through this obstacle course, you're trying to get from one end of the level to the other, you swing on ropes, there's plants that act like barrel cannons. Uh, it, it feels far more like the old-style Donkey Kong Country games, not so much like Tropical Freeze, which came out last year and we talked about in episode probably in the 20s, I think it was. <laughs> We're coming up on episode 100. Can you believe it? Yeah. Yeah, quite a while ago. <laughs> yeah. But, like, rolling is very important. You can roll as Yuka, who is the chameleon, and if you roll into enemies, then you'll defeat them. If you roll into, like, a barrel or something that's in your way, you'll smash it to get it out of your way. And it, it helps you move through the level a bit faster, and you can even do this kind of long jump. If you roll off a cliff, you have about a second after you roll off the cliff where you can still jump. That's how you can do a long jump. All these are mechanics taken straight out of Donkey Kong Country, which were, like, classics of the 16-bit era. They were, like, the last great 2D side-scrolling platformers before uh, video games went polygonal and nobody wanted to play 2D games anymore for like 20 years. <laughs> and there's the requisite collectibles that you get in every level. There's five coins that you get which you need to progress through the overworld, which I'll talk about in a minute. And there's also uh, these B-guards that you collect at the end of each level. And that ties into the impossible lair, which is the main gimmick of this game is right from the start of the game is you can go straight for the ending if you want to because it's in this place called the impossible lair which is the game's final level and you can enter it as soon as the game begins but it's a super super hard platforming level and yuka Lely are one hit wonders you know you get hit once you lose Lely, and you lose all of Lely's extra abilities that she gives you although i do have to say that uh in Donkey Kong Country Tropical Freeze, I think all three of us complained that uh, if we didn't have one of Donkey Kong's companions, we felt kind of mm -hmm. neutered, basically. Yeah. Is that the word I want to use? Uh, Donkey Kong, just solo, didn't feel like he was capable of getting through everything the levels were throwing at us. Uh, I don't feel that way in this. Uh, I, I do feel like when you lose Laylee that you're restricted a little bit, but I no longer feel like when I'm just playing as Yuka that I may as well just jump off the nearest cliff and try again. Um, but having said that, you know, you still need more hits to get through the impossible lair, which is where the B-guards come in. And every B-guard that you've rescued from every level gets you another hit in the impossible lair. There are 48 total B-guards to collect, so that would give you 50 total hits to get through the entire impossible lair. And that's kind of the main the main gimmick that the game is, is running under is if you want to, you can try to beat that first level 
right away. People have already done it. Uh, <laughs> but if you need that extra help, then the more of the game you complete, the more help you will get in that last level. Or if you're just a completionist like me, uh, there's a lot for you to do otherwise outside of the impossible there. But there's also the overworld, which I think is where this game is really interesting, is there's this whole top-down area. It plays kind of like a classic Zelda game, uh, which is where you access all the different side-scrolling levels. And you have to solve puzzles to open up doorways on this overworld area, and even the puzzles you solve can actually change the levels. There's a basic form of the level, uh, but if you go on the overworld and you interact with the environment in a certain way, maybe you'll divert a river so that way it's flowing into that level now. Then you go back into that level, it's now flooded with water, and there's a whole new set of coins and a new bee guard for you to rescue, mm. uh, which That's I think clever. is really cool. I like that. Um, yeah. Ukulele, it just felt too derivative of the game it was trying to be. Like, it, it, that was what it was sold as. Uh, so it delivered very well. Uh, it delivered too well. It was a victim of its own concept, where it was a 3D platformer, it was a successor to Banjo-Kazooie, and what we discovered upon playing it is we would rather be playing Banjo-Kazooie. <laughs> Ukulele in the Impossible Lair is building on Donkey Kong Country, but it feels like its own game. And I am, I've been very happy with what I played of it so cool. far. Uh, and then the last game we're going to talk about is uh, Trine 4, The Nightmare Prince, uh, also released as part of the Ultimate Trine Collection, which has all, all four games in. From what I've seen, the games I'm definitely interested in, uh, just because of the, the Lost Vikings comparison. Uh, but I'll, I'll let you give a bit more of a overview on that, having actually played it. Yeah, the Trine series is building on the idea of the Lost Vikings, which was a classic 16-bit platformer where you played as this trio of Vikings who become lost after they get abducted by an alien, and they have to navigate these different environments using their different abilities. There was one guy who had a shield who could block attacks and other people, and uh, another Viking could stand on top of it. There was another Viking who was the only one who could jump, and there was a third Viking who was the only one who could actually attack. So you had to use all these different skills to get through the different levels. Trine is the same concept, except the abilities of the different characters are mixed up a little bit. Uh, there's Amadeus the Wizard, who can levitate objects, and he can also create boxes out of thin air and move them around where he needs them to be. Uh, there's Pontius the Knight, who has a shield that can block objects, and he also has a sword that he can attack with at melee range. And then there's Zoya the Thief, who has a bow she can attack with. She can also use a, a rope to swing and she can connect that rope to hooks in the environment and she can also attach them to Amadeus's summoned boxes uh, so and all three of them can jump so there's there's a lot more flexibility when you're playing as them and you just switch between the one you're playing as by pressing a shoulder button it's all instantaneous it's very very similar to the lost vikings but just with more modern sensibilities and I, I've enjoyed my time with it. Um, it's got some light RPG mechanics. There's magic potions that you can find in every level. You sometimes have to solve a simple puzzle. Other times you just have to take the time to go and grab them. And the more of these you gather, you can upgrade your character's skills. And your characters get more and more skills over the course of the game. Because there is also an RPG experience system. <laughs> kind of. When, when you fight enemies, you do get experience for beating them. But the 
battles are all scripted, so you're getting the same experience at the same point as every other player is going to get them, so you're going to get the skill unlocks at the same point, so it, it's not really an RPG experience system, it's just a way of <laughs> gating when you unlock abilities. It's kind of an odd system, but like uh, Zoya, very shortly after I started the game, I unlocked some elemental arrows with her, which created more puzzle solving I could do with her bow and arrow. Like, I, I barely even started on this game. I'm sure there's a lot more abilities I'm going to unlock, which is going to make these heroes' skills even broader, and I'm sure they'll synergize in even more interesting ways. This is Triant 4, and the first three are out on the Switch, and they're out together in one collection in the Trine Ultimate Collection. So I, I played Trine 4 because it was the new one, it was the one I wanted to talk about, but I'm sure all four of them are fairly similar, although I'm sure there's also a design evolution where if after playing Trine 4, if you go back to the first one, it's probably not going to feel as good to play, <laughs> but I'm just guessing because I haven't played any of them yet. <laughs> uh, and the Ultimate Collection is actually kind of interesting. It, it was released physically, and I got that, and as you can probably guess, Trine 4 is on the card, and the other ones are a download code, but the download code for it actually also downloaded a digital version of Trine 4 as well. Yeah. So I have Trine 4 digitally and physically from buying this physical version. So the card is now just kind of sitting on my shelf and I'm not sure I'm ever going to use it again because <laughs> I have all four of them on one SD card now. So it's just easier just to play them all that way. But Still weird, but cool. I, I wasn't going to argue with yeah. it. Basically, they gave me the game twice. Just like, that's how they that's how they, they uh, market these things. That's how they sell them at retail. So I was like, fine, cool. I'll take it. <laughs> but um, like I, I, I enjoyed it. I liked it. It's, it's a cool game. It's a fun spin on the platforming concept. Like I know Lost Vikings was a long time ago uh, in terms of you know, the, the lifetime of video games. So, you know, they say, it's Lost Vikings. That probably doesn't mean anything to most people. It obviously means something to me and Andy, but yes, very we old. are old men in terms of video games. So, uh, yeah. So, like, if, if it's Lost Vikings, if that means something to you, this totally lives up to Lost Vikings. But if you're just looking for a smart puzzle platformer that is probably unlike any other platformer you've ever played, also good. I, I recommend trying for Okay, Andrew, what are you playing this coming week, as if I had to ask? <laughs> well, I've got two swords, one steel, one is silver, and both are for monsters. I am playing Switcher 3 all week next week, I have no doubt. I am going to be playing all the things I'm already playing, so Nino Kuni, Ghostbusters, and I'm also going to start Switcher 3, just so we can talk about it, and then I'm probably going to pack it for Christmas, because that, that seems like a good Christmas experience. Um, yeah, totally. Actually, when we were discussing the show uh, in a private chat on the uh, on Twitter, you were you were on about the games you were trying to juggle and get done before Pokemon comes out, and I I started with a reply of everything I'm playing at once, and then I just gave up and just deleted the the, the thing because <laughs> I, I just felt tired from it. So <laughs> I normally try to play games one at a time, but this September and even this October, October has gotten out of control too. I I'm barely keeping up. I, I feel like I've discovered variety finally like i used to just start one game play it till completion and now i've got four on the go and it's covering all my moods i, I kind of feel happy with that that i i'm finally allowing myself to play games like this but uh, yeah also it is daunting when you see all these big games on the horizon 
Okay, thanks for listening to episode 93 of the Switch Focus podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps us to get noticed. You can also subscribe on Stitcher, TuneIn, and other podcast services. Be sure to join our Discord server to interact with the lively Switch Focus community. Follow us on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, and at switchfocuspodcast.com for updates, news, and other content. Links are in the show notes. If you'd like to support the show, you can now buy us a coffee. Details are on our website. Thanks in advance. Uh, this episode was edited by Craig Wendell, uh, also known as Crady Craig on Twitter, uh, and has a music career at, at Wimbles at Dawn. Uh, and if you want to follow the the regular panelists uh, individually on Twitter, you can do so. I'm at Flame Roast Toast. Andrew is at Play Critically. He also streams at Twitch.tv forward slash Play Critically. And Ginny is at Ginny Woes. Ghostbusters reference.